I'm Sonia Stott. I'm Drew Grantham. I'm Cheryl Ma. And you're listening to CNI Radio. The CNI is the University of California's Carbon Neutrality Initiative, which aims to reach carbon neutrality from the UC's direct emissions by 2025 and carbon neutrality from indirect emissions controlled by the UC by 2030. As the UCLA CNI ambassadors, we're dedicated to keeping you updated on all things CNI, analyzing current environmental legislation and exploring different careers and perspectives in the world of sustainability. Stay with us. So on January 20th, 2021, also known as Inauguration Day, President Joe Biden via executive order re-entered the United States into the Paris Climate Agreement. Former President Donald Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the agreement on June 1st, 2017. His reasons included that the deal was unfair to the United States, and he also claimed that the American economy would be hamstrung compared to how the deal treated China and India, two of the United States' major competitors. So today on our program, we're going to talk about the effects of rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, the details and frameworks of this agreement, and where this agreement falls short. We will hear from Carbon Neutrality Initiative Ambassador Drew Grantham and UCLA's Chief Deputy Sustainability Officer Bonnie Benson. Starting with Drew, what is the Paris Climate Agreement? So the Paris Climate Agreement is, um, it's like a major worldwide agreement that came together with about 190 parties all signed it. The stated goal of the agreement is to limit global warming to well below 2 and preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. And they state that they, they want this to be done through economic and social transformations, which basically means reducing the amount of fossil fuels being burned for energy and making other kind of social adjustments to how we look at producing energy and combusting those fossil fuels. Are there any major emitting countries that are not included in this agreement? Yeah, there's a few major emitters, such as like Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, kind of in the Middle East that didn't end up signing the agreement. And also, as of right now, there's still technically only 189 parties since the, the U.S. was temporarily withdrawn, although we're being placed back in very soon. And um, how has it been effective so far? So the effects of the agreement are pretty complicated. To track like future emissions and future levels, it requires quite a bit of complex like mathematical computing and nothing is for sure accurate. But one of the main concerns people have about the agreement is the fact that our current goals set by all the countries are only set to keep temperatures down to 2.6 degrees Celsius above the industrial levels. How, how does this work? Yeah, so the basic framework of the agreement is that each individual country who signed will submit an NDC or a nationally determined contributions. So these are basically each country decides their own plan of how they're going to reduce their own emissions, maybe pledge some money to help other countries for like richer countries like the US and China. They can pledge money to contribute to developing countries who might have more troubles in changing over these energies. And the basic idea of it is that in five-year cycles, everybody will reconvene. They'll kind of talk about their progress and their struggles with what they've done in reducing contributions, and then they'll set new, hopefully more aggressive goals to how they'll reduce their emissions. So how has the United States been involved in the Paris Climate Accord? Um, As many people know, Donald Trump initially announced that he was going to, or I should start at the very beginning. (laughs) So originally, Obama was the first president who negotiated and and entered the U.S. into the deal 
one of the facts about it is he actually entered with an executive order. So he kind of bypassed Congress in that. So that's what made it able for Trump also to bypass Congress and his decision to remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement when he announced it in 2017. And then it came into effect last year, 2020, because of some of the workings of the agreement. So, yeah. And then after that, obviously, one of the main parts of Biden's campaign was committing to re-entering the agreement on Inauguration Day, which he did. There's like a 30-day waiting period before you can re-enter. So that's what we're in right now. But we're going to be re-entered very soon. So what does it mean for the United States to be involved? Yeah, so a big part, I think, of the Paris Agreement in general is just this recognition by so many world leaders and so many countries in the world that climate change is a problem, which, I mean, up to this point, it's been kind of like most people recognized it and the scientific community recognized it, but there are still doubts and lots of concerns. So I think the U.S. being a part of it is really huge for just the general consensus around climate change and the fact that humans are causing it and the fact that it is going to be a problem in the future if we don't start dealing with it now. Were there any other impacts of former President Donald Trump withdrawing from the agreement? Like, how did this shape the United States in that time when we were no longer in the agreement? When he actually announced that we were going to be removed from the agreement, since it didn't take place for the next three years or so, um, the people who were involved in it continued working and continued making our nationally determined contribution plan, and we submitted it since we were still in the agreement. But I think the effect of it overall was, again, that kind of just public thought of what climate change is. When you have the president of the United States kind of renouncing it and saying it's it's not that big of a problem, and it kind of has that kind of social impact where people are again questioning the kind of science behind it and the importance of the of the issue. And then what are the benefits for the United States being in this agreement? So I think some of the biggest benefits for the U.S. being re-entered is, again, mostly that social aspect of just everybody like being on track towards this big goal and the kind of world consensus and the, and the world peace kind of aspect of it where everybody is working towards this and we're not we're not like fractured anymore. I think that really put the U.S. as an outlier, as one of the main countries that was not in the agreement. So by kind of saying we're going to keep working with everybody else in the world, we're going to keep working towards this, it kind of brought a bit more sense of security to the agreement as well. Trump mentioned the fact that the deal treated China and, and, and India different than it did the United States. Is that based in fact, or what? what are the ways that these countries are being treated differently in the Paris Climate Agreement? Right. So that, I mean, his, uh, his points aren't like completely unfounded. So each country, as I said before, they kind of individually decide what their contributions are going to be. So each individual leader, each person who is discussing the deal for their own country was kind of putting forth their own ideas of what they want to reach, like what emission levels they want to reach and how much they want to kind of reduce their emissions. The China and India argument is not that founded because China and India in themselves are also working hard to reduce emissions. They have very different problems than the U.S. because of like the way their economies are structured and the way their societies are structured. So his kind of he argued like, oh, China isn't going to start reducing their emissions until 13 years from now. But that's not exactly true. They're working towards lowering their emission standards like where they were in pre-industrial levels and those sorts of things. And it's just going to take longer for these different societies. But I definitely think his worry about like the deal hamstringing the economy, as he kind of mentioned, 
I mean, I think it's definitely worth re-looking at as a new president. The old president kind of made his decisions about what he thinks is important. So looking over that is is also very important for the new president. But I think in general, the like I said, the forecasting for the future is super hard to do. So some estimates say trying to do these new mission standards is going to cost a lot of jobs. It's going to hurt the economy a lot. Other models are showing that in the future, it's actually going to have huge economic benefits. But I think the consensus kind of comes around that more than a job loss, it's just going to be a job transition. So jobs that were originally held in like coal and oil extraction, all those sorts of things are going to move to more like green energy and those sorts of industries. I know you already touched on the fact that we were already working and making reports for the Paris Climate Accord, even when Trump announced our withdrawal in 2017. So will there will we see a big impact of rejoining? Yeah, because of that, I don't think there'll be like a huge impact on what's the standards that are being imposed or those sorts sorts of ideas. But again, it's definitely more of that like US is working towards with the rest of the world towards this goal and we're are, we are committed to making a change in how we're affecting our climate. And how can the United Nations or other countries involved in the agreement convince other countries to join? I think the main appeal of the agreement is that since all these countries are already in the agreement, that being out of it may result in other countries kind of treating you poorly or not treating you poorly necessarily, but maybe not giving you like as much of trade deals or kind of working with you as closely. So the, the longer they're out of the agreement is kind of harming their economies and harming their countries more than they would if they would just join the agreement as well. So I don't think there's any specific actions the UN is going to take to try to convince them. It's just going to be over time, they're going to realize that being in the agreement is more beneficial for them. And what is this agreement lacking? Yeah, so a lot of critics of the agreement are looking at the fact that there is no serious like repercussions for not reaching the goals or reaching your emission goals. And the, since the main problem for those countries is that they may be neglected or treated less not as well by other countries in the agreement, then countries like the U.S. and China, who have such major economies and have such power over the world economy, are kind of almost exempt from that. So a lot of people are worried that these are just kind of empty goals that they're just throwing out there to look good and they're not really going to be pursued and effectively put into place. So when you're looking at such a worldwide scale of things, it's really hard to put in any type of repercussions for not reaching the goals, especially for these huge countries and huge economies. So that's one thing that the agreement may may be lacking, but it's not really clear how they're going to move forward in trying to address something like that. And then um, how does political fluctuation within countries, how can that affect their role in the Paris Climate Agreement and thus the effectiveness of the agreement? Right. And that kind of ties back into our whole U.S. example. I mean, in three different presidencies, we entered the agreement, left the agreement, and now we're back in. So how each leader of each country gets to decide their own plan. So the next time we get to decide the plan, who's in control at that point, what political party is in control at that point, will probably have a pretty big impact on what kind of goals are uh, set for the future. And, and at the end of the day, like how many emissions are released or how much emissions is released and how much that's going to affect our climate. Thank you, Drew, for your research and input. Next, we'll hear from UCLA's Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer, Bonnie Benson, on her experiences within the sustainability community, her input on how the Paris Agreement will affect the university's sustainability goals, 
and the policy she would like to see in supplement to our re-entrance to the Paris Agreement. How do you think the United States re-entrance into the Paris Climate Accord, even just kind of like as like a symbolic thing, how do you think that will affect American institutions' pursuit of carbon neutrality, if at all? Well, of course it will affect, right? Because the whole point behind these international approaches to global issues is is that you are basically harnessing the strengths of everyone and to solve the problem. And and especially given that we're one of the largest emitters, why should much smaller why should why is Sri Lanka paying the price for us? Like seriously, like that our our life is subsidized on their backs and, and their loss of, of land and, and the the climate refugees that are happening there even now. So you know, so that's that's just important from that perspective. That when we pulled out of the climate accord, many universities said no, we're still in, and in fact, many cities said we're still in. So hence, there was actually a movement called "We're still in." We were still in, and so so that didn't change much. But again, in terms of of normalizing the work and harnessing everyone into it, it's essential. You know, we we can't be one of the largest emitters and and not be in there and not be part of the solutions and part and not be making commitments. Now. It's symbolic, as you say, at this point, we haven't made any real commitments to anything as a, as a country, but we need to be there and we need to have the, the pressure that is eventually going to be on us because we're there. And if we're not moving things forward is essential. So, you know, I also hope that it really, one would hope that it's going to open up some doors for the funding and the resources that, that are needed to, to solve the problems. You know, my experience is that we, we the solutions are out there whether it's a policy or a technology or something else, some other type of solution, but the solutions are out there. And if a large enough entity says that they want something to happen, it will happen. And that's one of the things that, that I like to just, a lot of our, our campus wonders, you know, what can we do? You know, why, how do, you know, how do we actually change the world? And at UCLA, if you think about it, we're a part of a system that is the largest employer in the state. You see a lot alone, we have a billion dollars worth of buying power a year on stuff. That's not services, that's stuff. A billion dollars. If California were its own country, it would be the fifth largest GDP. And 30% of every item that comes into the country comes in through the port of LA. So if you put all those together, if we really want something to happen and we say that you know, we're going to take a stand on an item or a product or an approach Vendors want to meet our demand because we are big and we have a lot of, we have a good brand. And yeah. so we can, we can actually get solutions to be made. And once we can do it, then a lot of times those vendors, they don't want to have duplicate systems for us versus someone else. So they're going to make the change across their entire customer base. And it's why the strategy, which we'll see how this goes now that we have a different president, but how California, when California made it the target about things like light bulbs and vehicles, uh, fuel emission, uh, fuel consumption in vehicles, it was so important because a car manufacturer doesn't want to lose the purchasing power of California. And they're not going to make two kinds of cars because that's not feasible. So it's why that it's why it's really important for an organization like UCLA or an organization like the UC systems or all the higher ed organizations within the state of California to push. And you know, we've got a national group across that works together. Call I work with colleagues across the country that we, like I said, that going back to that competition, we utilize. If someone's made headway on one thing, 
like for instance, getting Chick-fil-A to get rid of styrofoam cups, UT Austin's already done that. So it's a lot easier now for me to tee off of what they've done and do it here. And what I've done for that is something that we've done for them to do. So that healthy competition, that, that sharing of resources, that sharing of strategies is really important. What environmental policy would you like to see implemented in the future? And you can take this either within UCLA, within California, or within the United States, however you want to answer it. One is the right to repair. It's, and we've, we've heard this from some of our buyers in the, in the, in the campus that you know, they'll have an office chair that one of the wheels breaks. And a replacement wheel is almost the same cost as a brand new chair. And it's like, you know, think of all the embodied energy in those, that chair. Another one is that environmental and health issues are at the same level as a more standard cost benefit analysis in anything that we do. This is something that we took a stand on with the LA 100 project. So from the very beginning, when they had our focus group, and the, this advisory group is made up of like 100 different organizations of all different you know, municipalities and county and, and nonprofits and advocacy and economic groups. It's, it's all over the place. But one of the things I kept saying in every single brainstorming session was, I want to see that the health benefits are evaluated on the same level as the, the cost of the installation and the cost of power and not an add-on because typically it's a, oh, and by the way, it'll do this. And, and I had to push and push and push. And they kept, we got, we got like five months in and they were narrowing their methodology and I could see it was still an add-on. And I finally said, raised my hand and said, I have said over and over again, this, this can't just be an add-on. I said, I'm not, I didn't grow up here, but I know from enough people who do that you used to not be able to see the mountains when you're a half mile away. And the asthma rates were off the charts. And we have good data now that tells us how low-income areas are receive most of the negative impacts of air quality issues, and that those kids have lower test scores. They are not as healthy because they can't be outside running. Their families are, are steeped in poverty, some of which is because they might have lost a job because they're taking their child to the emergency room. Like, it deserves to be in the cost-benefit analysis. And... They, the response to them was, well, you're the one who, they said, well, it's not in the scope. And I said, well, who made the scope? So you don't care about the health of the community? And they're like, well, we didn't make the scope. I said, well, who did? And they said, LADP. I said, so I looked at LADP. So you don't care about the health of the community? And they said, well, you're the only one who's saying this. And I looked around the room and I said, I need a show of hands of everyone in this room who agrees with me. And 70% of the people raised their hands. And I said, it's not just me. And they have now put it up into the primary cost-benefit analysis. So it's an example of where it's like, we need to, unfortunately, in the US, the way that we evaluate success is on growth Mm -hmm. and sales. And if you start to look at some, there are some other countries that are starting to consider things like happiness indexes Mm -hmm. and health indexes. And that's what I want to see happen because that, that has a cross the board impact of supporting healthier communities, especially in those communities those low-income communities, of really addressing things like resource consumption. And the last thing, which, which really the third one, which really feeds into it is requiring anything that's sold that the, the manufacturer take responsibility for the end of life. Anything. Keurigs are Satan, in my opinion. And I personally would actually want to go and, and decredit the engineering program that gave the degree to the engineer that designed that. Because 25 years later, the engineer said, I really regret doing it. And I'm like, you fucking didn't do a life cycle analysis? 
that's that's like base engineering like and so unless you can produce a life cycle i don't think anything should be allowed to be sold can you elaborate what is a life cycle i don't i don't know what that is a life cycle analysis is what is the full cost benefit of an item from it's another way is cradle to grave you know, when it's end of life what happens what's the total <clears throat> cost of that item so for instance when you look at so okay we're 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 fighting with coke right now because coke wants to they want us to tell our campus that their bottles are reusable because they want it, they're trying to collect them up and re and reuse them. But the reality is, is they do a sucky job of it and it's much cheaper and has, depending on what you're measuring, like lower water usage to use virgin plastic. Okay. Versus taking lots of different plastic bottles and washing them and having to convert them in. But the life cycle analysis of the impact of that virgin plastic versus that recycled plastic is huge, especially if you start to factor in the microplastics that are happening you know, when it's not being recycled and it's getting loose in the environment or you know, things like that. The life cycle analysis will look at primary, secondary, and tertiary impacts of an item. So it's really, really important. Um, it's kind of like how we've got a problem now where the wind turbine blades, you know, we're just now, the wind turbines that were just, were first installed are just now coming to end of life. And there's an image that shows them piled up in the landfill because no one thought about what do we do with these wind turbine blades when we're done with them? You know, so it's like, it's that, you can't just like, oh, look, I made this great technology and it's perfect because at some point it will come back to haunt you. It's like right. nuclear, nuclear energy, really efficient way to do energy, large amounts, small footprint. As long as that reactor doesn't go, not a lot of negative impact except those rods. And now we're feeling that was what happened with, in Japan. So like the life cycle looks at the full impact from the raw materials to the end of life. So those are my three things. Right to repair rethinking how we we measure success and requiring health and to be right up there with any other any cost benefit analysis and anything that's sold in the country has to the manufacturer has to take responsibility from beginning to end and not just put money into a pot like coke did on they a bunch of the largest uh, plastic users put money into a pot and they were going to do all this stuff to supposedly mitigate and that was supposed to be great and the majority of the money got used for big ad campaigns saying that plastic is reusable. And there were a couple of billboards here in LA and their projects that they've done, which have only received tiny bits of funding, have had almost no impact and have actually failed in many cases. What do you do as a deputy chief sustainability officer at UCLA? Pretty much when you're in a role like this, that, that in the sustainability office, you work across the entire organization sort of as an air traffic controller. So you're, you're a keeper of the vision and the goals. You, you track, you, you try to align the stakeholders around those goals and identify um, some re, you know, resources, identify issues or barriers that might be holding us back from achieving them. And then you try to you know, align those stakeholders and then, and then drive them towards those goals. Sometimes what I do is as simple as, take pictures of dumpsters to identify, you know, try to problem solve what, what might be going on with our zero waste goal to representing the university on advisory groups outside of the university so that our perspective is heard. So for example, the LA 100 planning project, which is trying to look at what would take, uh, how do we get LA to 100% renewable energy? So I serve on that. You know, I also keep my ear to the ground about what needs and opportunities are to try to reduce redundancy. And if we've got multiple people with, with, you know, who might benefit from an effort 
or working on the same project that I can, you know, connect everyone up to reduce that redundancy. That's a long way of saying it's it, but it's really, it's that air traffic controller. Um, and then what's your, what's your elevator pitch for the UC's carbon neutrality initiative for someone who's never heard about it? The UC carbon uh, neutrality initiative is you know focused on emissions for scope one and scope two. So those emissions that are directly related to campus operations, fuel usage on campus or purchase electricity. And it's about how do we take an accounting and understanding of that carbon footprint and develop a strategy to actually mitigate and well, mitigate and then reduce those emissions to, to zero. And then are we on track to reach... Wait, did I convince you? Let me see. You've convinced me. I, that's why I'm a, an ambassador. <laughs> I know. I but you know, maybe I need to work on my elevator pitch. Wow. Okay. Oh my gosh. I even even as um as a removed person, I'm still you still sold me. And then are we on track to reach our CNI scope one and scope two goals? Yes and no. So so we are on track. We have met all the, the initial targets, but we've got some big jumps that we have to address. And you know, one of them, one of them is our cogen plant. It's an incredibly important piece of infrastructure. And, you know, especially given our limited space where you know we're not like some of the other campuses where they can put in a couple acres of solar panels, you know, and have that as backup. We have a tight footprint and it's important for us to be able to have the redundancy that we can island the campus in the case of a major power outage to keep essential functions going, give lights enough lights in the residence halls to get the students out if necessary, to keep the research going, you know, or the freezers, you know, sort of at, at yeah, you know, so we don't lose that that research. And so it's an important piece. So, you know, we are actively working towards this, but we don't have all the answers yet. And then, what are your favorite and least favorite things about your position? Well, my favorite thing, and my people laugh when I call it my drug of choice, is I love matchmaking, connecting the dots on an issue and aligning some stakeholders that may not have been aligned before and having, you know, the outcomes of that alignment have three positive results, at least. Now, that's like my, you know, taking underutilized resources, aligning different groups and making stuff happen. That's what I love. And, and working with people that are really passionate and committed. And, and that's exciting for me. You know, what, I, what I, I don't love is that I don't have all the resources I need to, to give me the bandwidth and capacity to be the type of, to make the type of change I want and to, to be the resource that students need to do the great work that they need to do and to, to really, to move us along faster. That's what I don't like about my job. How do you think the UC's CNI program will influence other universities trying to go carbon neutral? Well, it's interesting. It, it, it already has. Um, I, I receive, you know, fairly regular calls from colleagues at other campuses asking for advice about how we've done things or how we're approaching things. And I can, I can direct them toward major reports that have been accomplished as part of that work. Um, that are posted publicly and made available, but not everyone knows they're there or talk about different student work that's going on. And so that's, you know, one of the biggest things that, that can help move different campuses forward is that sort of either that competition aspect of, oh, well, they're doing it. So why can't we do it type of scenario You're using that? Yeah. And we, my colleagues and I do that quite a bit of like, well, you know, like we're better than them. Let's, let's like, if they can do it, we can, but also, oh, look, see, they did it and it's safe. You know, and so in higher ed, there, there's a lot of that concern about liability. And so it's really important to have, be able to learn from the different campuses, demonstrate that it was possible in a complex 
uh, organization and to move things forward that way. And if you think about it, you know, with the 10 campuses, all very different campuses, all very different personalities and infrastructural challenges or opportunities. And, you know, so we're able to benefit from from proof of concept in, in different scenarios as well. That was a great segue into my next question, which is, um, how is UCLA's role in UC-wide carbon neutrality different from other universities? So either the other UCs or other universities are finally jumping on the carbon neutrality wagon. You know, for other universities, again, we're benefiting from a system. And, you know, for example, another benefit from that system that unfortunately we can't take advantage of, but the eight of the 10 campuses can, is that you know, the president's office, the, the UC, UCOP established themselves as a wholesale utility provider, which allowed them to develop large scale projects, which brings that per unit cost of power down and wheel that power wholesale to eight of those camp, those eight campuses. Now, you know, one of the ways that we're different is we're one of those two campuses uh, that, that can't receive that power. And it's because we are in a municipal owned utility not an investor-owned utility. So we, it's actually written in the city of LA charter that LAWP is the only entity that can sell power in the, the city limits. And so therefore, if we were to purchase power from our system, it would violate that. So that's one mm-hmm. way that we're different, right? That we have that that sort of um, limitation in, in place. It's, I don't, so it makes, it doesn't make us totally different than no other, you know, there are other examples like Riverside, for example, that is in the same similar place. It is allowing us to, though, start to, again, advocate with LADWP regarding potential changes or that need to be made. And that's why, for instance, that participating in the LA100 projects that I mentioned earlier is so important, is that, you know, it's not just about can UCLA, if just UCLA makes it in the city, that's not enough. If we actually want to make a difference, we have to, we have to bring everyone along, right? And so how can UCLA use its status to you know, be an innovator and move things forward and and pave the way for others. Now, another way that we're different from the UCs is that, you know, there's a big push to go um, 100% electrification. So basically remove the need for any sort of natural gas or even biogas from the campuses. Um, you know, there's, there's biogas, there's a lot of schools of thought on whether you can actually call it carbon neutral, right? So while it's, it's a really noble and appropriate approach for electrification on a campus like ours, again, you know, that ability to secure our research and secure critical functions and continue to, to sort of, you know, proceed with life-saving work is important. So, you know, I'll just give you an example that's not us about the importance of, say, the research is that, you know, in Hurricane Sandy, when it hit New York City and flooded the basements of a lot of those areas, and I can never remember if it's Columbia or NYU. I think it was NYU. But they had these mice that were had, they had spent 10 years making, basically, that were, re- that were key. They were very close to coming up with a, a, solution, a cure for a certain type of cancer, a treatment. And all those mice died. They drowned when Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. you know, and so they were very close. And they, they had like, that's like 10 years of setback for them. Yeah. And so our research is important. It saves lives and it's, it's also core vision mission. So, you know, and students are important, your core vision mission. So it's, you know, but for both those things, we need to have the ability to island. And, and the reality is, is that 
unless we're going to mow down Bel Air and, you know, litter that whole area with wind turbines and solar panels, which isn't going to happen for lots of reasons, you know, we have to have some ways to generate energy on our, on our limited footprint. So it, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of pushback going back, uh, going on right now, even with, um, there's a, a movement called the Green New Deal that's some faculty and students that's saying that we need to move faster and we also need to not use, we shouldn't be using any offsets whatsoever and we shouldn't be using any biogas. And, and the reality is, is that we have to find the balance. We have to, to do the responsible thing with carbon neutrality. We also have to recognize that we have different limitations from say Riverside that has 5,000 acres and Davis, that has, you know, there's just different needs here. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but just to give you some of that sort of, you know, there's some challenges. Are there any other existing barriers to neutrality right now, other than trying to strike this balance between retaining to the like core mission of the university while also working towards carbon neutrality and beyond? Well, there are a number of barriers. One is that we know how we could do it, but it's a significant amount of money to do it. Now, that said, some of our system needs to be heavily upgraded. So, you know, in thinking about what the cost is to, to go to, to switch off of our steam system, for example, to a more efficient hot water system or to um, some sort of ground source heat pump system. It's very expensive. Stanford did this. I want to say, was it a hundred million or was it more than that to convert their system from steam to hot water? I mean, it's not small. And so, you know, the, the challenges as a state agency, especially a state agency that, that doesn't have a lot of wiggle room for space, you know, so to, to do construction and keep things online, the tendency is to just do smaller projects. And while that may reduce energy usage or consumption or be, make us more efficient for, you know, in increments, it, it, you know, it's not the whole solution. And so trying to get us to that point where A, we can have the bandwidth to envision a different future, B, commission the study and C, request a very large amount of money. That's a barrier. And so, Stanford, you know, well, just because they're a, a large private with a large endowment doesn't mean that they have unlimited money. They have a little more buffer on innovation in that way. You know, they, they have a different way of, you know, because they're private, they have a different budgeting structure. So that's that's one big challenge. The other challenge is, is that being so decentralized and with so many competing values on the campus, it's tough to to push one value over another sometimes on this campus. And then I'll just say the other barrier, I will say just because I have to say it is technology isn't there yet, you know? So, you know, they have major milestones and things of, of storage, but that storage isn't foolproof. It's very, it records a very large footprint. And quite frankly, when that storage has been, quote, used up, it's a very big footprint to dispose of those batteries and that storage infrastructure. So, that's the other piece is while we're seeing that, that, that the, the track, track to innovation or to, to changing technology is it's shortening, like, like even for Davis and, and Riverside, for them to go all electric, all, all electrical, at, you know, off of solar, unless they're a banker's hours only, that's not going to work for them, right? So they're going to need storage. That's another barrier. What makes you passionate about environmentalism and uh, sustainability? Well, my, my passion comes from, you know, my entire life almost until I was about 23, 22. I, I was going to be an equine veterinarian and I was going to do, um, I, I'd done equine anesthesia and whatnot. And 
And I took a break between my junior and senior year. I was paying for my own college. Um, I took a break my junior and senior years. It was supposed to be one year. It turned to six years. And in the, the course of that six years, um, I had, it, it opened the door for a lot of reflection. I'd always considered myself. Well, so, uh, a, a goal of my life had always been to, to change the world. And I love veterinary medicine, but, but, and there's, there's definitely, it's noble to save someone's animal, but it's also, you know, it's not going to change the world, um, necessarily, you know, so when I, when I was on that six years off, you know, it was a pretty sort of not traumatic. It had just had ups and downs because of, of not sure what I was doing and where I was going and whatnot. But I really started to become interested in looking at some different things. Now, I'd been an environmental studies major for those first three years, anyhow, because that school doesn't care what your major is as long as you get your, your, you know, science classes done. And that major allowed me to do those science classes while also have some other interest areas. I started to ask questions, you know, at the tail end of that, that got six years off, I moved to Seattle and it was a really fascinating time to be in Seattle. It was the year of the, the, height and fall of the dot-com, the big drought, the big earthquake, and the year after the WTO riots. And so it was a really fascinating time to be in Seattle because I'd always thought I wanted to live in a liberal environment. Like that's that's my problem is I'm living in, in, a, in a very conservative environment and that's not where I want to be. And being in Seattle, I learned that you swing the pendulum too far either way and it can be imbalanced. So, you know, I saw big challenges in Seattle, you know, serious infrastructural issues, serious budget issues because they couldn't make a decision on something, you know, mm-hmm. or no one wanted to, to, to make the hard case of taking down a bridge that really needed to come down or that they wanted to have a committee to evaluate the committee to evaluate whether you should have a committee. No joke. They have, they have that. And, you know, so that was pretty significant. I also had always identified as an as environmentalist, but when you looked at the WTO riots, protest is important, but it occurred, it, it, it suddenly struck me that we also need to be able to speak each other's language and work across, you know, work with who we might view as someone who, who isn't someone we have the same viewpoint with and, and come up with solutions that, that, you know, and that pr- protest in that situation was actually damaging because it took our ability to participate in some very important conversations and they've moved those, the WTO talks to areas where you can't access them anymore. Right. Cause and now they're trying to like, problem. yeah. I learned about like, so, they're just trying to hide where they are. So there's no protests. Right. And so, it, and, and, you know, to say, I'll say that, you know, we, as we've seen, even in the last year, just because it's pro there's protests going on, it doesn't mean it's the people that are there protesting, causing the problems, you know? So, so yeah. we have to be careful in how we make that, that generalization there because, but the reality is, is just that, you know, for me at that point in time, it was, it was really, it, it struck me as that there might be a different way and we needed to, and at the same time, I, I had, I went back to then, I went back to Mount Holyoke and to finish my degree. And it was a really pivotal year then. Um, there were a lot of approaches in my courses that were very sort of problem-based and not solution-based. And I remember in, in my environmental politics class, uh, Professor Doug Amy was challenging us and trying to bait us in an argument and no one would take it. And someone, he finds like, are you guys asleep? And someone said, we're numb. You've painted it so grim. What's the point? And, and I raised my head and said, yeah, you know, I respect my classmates' perspective here. The geology, because in that program, the geology and the geography and the, and the environmental studies majors were all together into earth sciences department. And 
So the geology majors declare their major and they're handed a box of rocks and they are the happiest, no joke, they were the happiest people in the world. They were always leaping around the department, happy as can be. And like the environmental studies major declare their major and they're like handed razor blades, Prozac and a free head examining and they sit in the corner mumbling, we're all going to die. And it's like, this isn't helpful. Like we actually need to be looking, studying what has worked and understand or what hasn't worked and understand different strategies. And like, that's what we need to be. And I started to actually do a lot of work on that. So I, I, there were a number of speakers that came through. Bill McDonough was one of them that really sort of resonated with me. But I actually put together a proposal for the head of our department that was like a, um, to revamp the major. Um, and this was after talking to students that were in the program that were unhappy and students that were not in the program that should have been in the program that were, you know, why did they? And he laughed me out of his office and I had put together a 10 year plan to transition it. And he laughed. He was like, you crazy. And then I put together a plan for conference on problem solving. And then he laughed me out of the office again. And, and then that I graduated and I think he was glad. But to me, what the, the point was, is that if you only focus on the problem, if you only focus on, you know, on, on one aspect, it's, it's, it can be very difficult to move that needle and that we really needed to focus on solutions and teach solutions and identify ways to, to shift the approach. So that's how I ended up. And I could go into, there's more of how I landed it. I mean, I, I totally fell into my first job in sustainability, literally. I mean, it was pretty funny, but I don't want to bore you, but. Well, please do, because there's only three questions left. And the, the next one on my list is, um, how did you get to the position that you're in today? So when I graduated from Mount Holyoke, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, a faculty member offered me a, some work doing some, um, helping her farm. She had a farm and, and she was redoing the, the house. And I, she gave me everything else, the back 13 acres. And I, I built fences and tore down fences and, and, and did all sorts of stuff. And it was really fun. And, and for the first time was actually sort of, um, being able to put some visions into action and see them executed. And then I broke my ankle and I had no insurance. And it was the start of winter in Massachusetts. So that basically made me worthless because of ice. And that same week, my, my brother almost died and my mother almost died. And they were both in Phoenix. And I had, I had promised myself I'd never, never go back to live in Phoenix ever again. But when I was worthless on crutches and my family needed me, so I went home. And then as soon as I could walk again, I needed money. So I called a friend of mine who's an equine surgeon. I said, I'm back in town and I'm looking for a temporary position because I promised myself that if I was going to go back into veterinary medicine, I was going to vet school. But in the meantime, that I would look at this other thing I was starting to call sustainability. So I, I started to work there. And, um, you know, after I got some banks sort of saved up, I, I started to, I decided to volunteer at three, you know, I made three calls looking for a volunteer position to try to understand what this was. And I, I still don't even know why I chose the ones I chose, but I just, I chose, it was like the National Forest Service. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, but whatever. The City of Phoenix Planning Department and the Center for Environmental Studies at Arizona State University. I was five weeks into a internship at the City of Phoenix Planning Department which was really interesting to see the frustration between the regular career staff and the appointed staff. So the, the, you know, the, the appointed positions and how they had no clue what a GIS person does. And they were, you know, like what it takes to do the, you know, like they just, like I would actually make any new appointed person that they have to like walk in the shoes of five people, at least five different roles in their department, because I think it's just, they just have no clue. 
So that was really interesting. And then at five weeks into that, I got a call from ASU asking me to come in for an interview. And I went in and I was such an idiot. Halfway through the interview, they're like, well, would you take a position for pay? And I, or would you take a full-time position? And I literally actually said for pay? Stupid. Yeah. It's like, oh, sure. Why not? And, and so what an idiot, but, and having then, you know, I, I moved up in that, in that, in the university quite a bit and uh, over time and, and having then hired people before running um, hiring processes. I know it's really a fluke that I got hired in that, that had I gone through a regular sort of job posting position, you know, I never would have gotten hired. So um, that was really interesting. And my job, my, my, my target, my responsibility was to provide program coordinating support to two different um, administrative types. One was brought in by the president's by the president from NOAA to just uh, to start to spec out the vision, his vision for sustainability. And and then the other one was working on some other types of um, corporate type of thing. And I, I really hit it off with the first person, but he was in his listening period, which means he wasn't really doing anything yet. He was just trying to sort of figure out what were the strengths and weaknesses of the university and whatnot. We talked a lot. And then once he took me out for coffee, you know, six months later to ask for help on a project. And I was like so excited. You know, I had my notebook and I had my pen and I was like, yes, I'm finally getting to work with Jim on something. And and, and he sat out and he asked me to help plan his, this retreat in uh, Merida, Mexico, where they we would convene 15 leaders, international leaders in sustainability and one potential donor and spend three days, you know, discussing what is sustainability, what is sustainability science, how do you study it, that sort of thing. And um, funny side story is that I was so excited and so nervous that, and I'm a dyed in the wool tea drinker. I hate coffee, but I actually um, picked up Jim's coffee cup and took a sip out of it by accident. And it was vile. And I made faces and he was like, then don't drink any, any, he's like, don't drink my coffee then. And I was like, and he is so, he is such a, like a, he's got such a spirit. He knew exactly what was going on. And he was just letting me like, (laughs) just let me do it. And then made fun of me. And it's one of his favorite, one of his two favorite stories to tell about me, that one and that I was a walk-on. But um, anyhow, so so anyhow, we did that. And then um, he came back from Mexico and said, well, we just got $25 million. Will you come into the president's office and help me design the concept for the Global Institute of Sustainability? And so I said, sure. And that was that. And we designed a really awesome program. And it was really hard work and a lot of hours. But that's how I got into it. And um I eventually took a job there. Like, so after we made the Institute and it was in the president's office and we institutionalized it, I was given the choice to stay in the president's office and work on other initiatives or pick up a pillar of this, which was the the sustainability practices piece that no one wanted because they thought it was just boring operations. At the time, it was really highly visible. So it was very interesting. So yeah, lots of different things. Thank you, Bonnie, for your amazing answers and for being our guest. That's the end of our program this week. Tune in next week for another episode of CNI Radio. Thanks for listening. Also, an update since this episode was recorded a while ago, the United States is now officially back in the Paris Climate Agreement.